I actually happen to believe that all the covenants are about faith um, because the way that God relates to us is by revealing himself and calling us to trust him. It was like that even before sin entered the world. And when sin did enter the world, God did not change his modus operandi as far as calling people to live as his creatures dependent upon him. And yet Christians, I think, often are confused about what faith is. Those who are out, maybe outside of the Christian community trying to figure out what do Christians believe, I think often get confused about faith. It's one of those words that's used a lot in our culture, but I think the way the culture uses it is very different than the way the Bible uses it. Unfortunately, the way Christians understand the concept of faith is often different than what the Bible says. And so as we come here to Genesis 15, we really have one of the supreme stories in the Bible for teaching us about faith and what it looks like. So if you will, look with me at Genesis 15. I know Genesis 13, 8 and 9 is there. We're going to look at that in a few minutes, but we're going to read Genesis 15 to start with. This is God's word. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside. That means God took Abram outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. That is, God credited it to Abram as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, 
To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Hmm. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this revelation of who you are and what faith is. We pray that you would nurture our faith, create faith in us, even through the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I said, there are a lot of misunderstandings about faith. Ours is a day in a lot of ways where faith is seen as something the uneducated need. It's, it's what really needs to kick in when your reason can go no farther, or when you don't understand things. Some people even um, are, I, I guess, impressed by faith. They like it, but they, they regard it as a temperament that religious personality types seem to have. And, and they might even say, well, that's impressive. Um, this person has faith. And by that they mean this person has the ability to keep their head up when things are difficult. This person has the ability to sort of turn a blind eye to what's really going on, to escape from reality. And some people may even wish that they had more faith like that. Now, unfortunately, a lot of Christians seem to understand faith to be that same sort of thing. We live in a day and an age where so many Christians regard faith as a feeling, as a feeling. And it's not helped by, by a verse in the Bible, or I should say, a poor translation of a verse in the Bible. In the book of Hebrews, I don't know, if you were raised in a Christian home, if you were ever taught to memorize Bible passages, I suspect that at some point along the line you were taught to memorize the quote-unquote definition of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Let me read it for you as the NIV, the New International Version, translates it. It says this, and, and maybe these words will be familiar to some of you. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients or the ancient ones were commended for. Now the reason I want to bring that into this discussion today is because the book of Hebrews is talking about people like Abraham and saying this is what his faith is. And this is the faith that he was commended for. But when the NIV translates it, now faith is being sure, that's that's actually kind of a misrepresentation of what the Greek is is saying at that point. And the NIV is not alone. A lot of modern translations seem seem to give this impression that faith is a subjective experience. When it when it uses that phrase, being sure. In in actuality, um, Bill Lane used to, used to preach a lot about this. Some of us were privileged to know Bill um, before he passed away. Great New Testament scholar um, who lived down in Franklin the final years of his, his life. But he has a commentary, well-regarded well kind of two thick volumes explaining the book of Hebrews. And he goes to great lengths to argue this point. That word that is translated, being sure, is actually the word for a title deed. So to translate it as a subjective feeling or experience is really not correct and creates a real confusion because people all the time, Christians and non-Christians, think of faith as this subjective experience and want more of it and wonder what it means. They talk about living by faith as sort of this kind of mystical way of being able to somehow hear God's voice and just sort of 
kind of know which way to go and follow his guidance. And I talk to Christians all the time who are really confused about that because they go, honestly, I I don't think I've ever really felt that. I don't think I've ever really known what I was supposed to to do or what I was supposed to, 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 you know, do in this situation because of some confidence that just sort of appeared in my heart and my soul. And yet the Bible seems to say faith is this being sure. And honestly, a lot of times I'm not very sure. <laughs> at least I, I struggle with being sure. And so I wonder, am I a Christian at all? Now, the book, the, the book of Genesis actually helps us in this regard to understand. And again, this word that Hebrews translates being sure is a word for a title deed. I don't know if you've ever bought a house, but I'm telling you, when you buy a house, you don't just sort of trust that, oh, I have a feeling that it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> you put down the money and, and you don't walk away from the deal saying, oh, I feel like it's mine now. No, you get a title deed and you put it somewhere safe, right? You, you, you know it's yours because you have something objective, right? Faith, you see, celebrates the objective reality the objective reality of the promises of God. The promises of God are not abstract, nebulous, mystical things. The promises of God are reality. And faith is the ability to connect to that and to believe that. Now, it's not a temperament, it's a gift, the Bible says. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, had this wonderful way of describing this. He said, faith is this exotic plant that is not native to the human heart. And if you find it in your heart, you know that it must have been planted there by someone else. See, faith celebrates the objective reality of who God is and what He's done, and particularly what He's promised. And that determines reality. In other words, to live by faith is not to somehow walk around confident that you can hear God's voice so well in your heart that you know what to do in every situation. No, to live by faith is to celebrate in every situation, in every life decision, the objective reality that what God has promised is true. Right? That's a very different thing. But it's an important distinction. Bill Lane translates Hebrews 11.1 this way. Faith celebrates the objective reality of the events for which we hope. The demonstration of events as yet unseen. On this account, the men of the past received attestation by God. Does this matter? Yeah, it matters a lot. Because if you don't understand what faith is, wow, There's all kinds of ripple effects in your life. If you're confused about what faith is, it has devastating effects, both for those who are Christians and those who are trying to figure out what Christianity is, because it's really at the heart of what this whole idea of a relationship with God is about. Now, let's see, um, we're going to see this in a second, but I just want to say one more thing. When When you look at this story about Abram, if you get this idea of faith wrong, if you think of faith as this temperament or this confidence, this subjective feeling, then when you look at the story of Abram, all you can really do is admire him. All you can really do is admire him and wish that you might be more like him. But that's not what this story is for. This story is here so that our faith could actually be increased. 
Our, our, this story is here so that we could understand more about who God is. Because, here's the first point I want to make tonight about faith. Faith is relational and propositional. Faith is relational and propositional. Personal and propositional, if you will. In other words, it has a content to it, but it's connected to a person. It's a, it's a relationship. Faith is always connected to a relationship. It's not just a temperament. It's not just an abstract ability that you have to keep your head up when things are difficult. See, it says here that Abram believed God. It doesn't say Abraham had a supernatural ability to just believe. And there's a huge difference between those two things. It has everything to do with whether you admire Abram and say, wow, isn't that great? He believes, and I wish I could believe, versus he believes God. What is it about God that he believes? What is it about God that draws out from him a direction of his heart towards God? What does it mean to believe God? You see, Abram believes God. He doesn't just believe things about God. And yet, he doesn't just have sort of an abstract, nebulous belief in God. His belief in God is connected to the things God has said, the promises of God. So, faith is personal and propositional. Abram believes God, and he believes what God has said. He believes God's promises. Now, who is God? Well, the Bible spends a lot of time revealing this sort of thing. As a matter of fact, the whole entire Bible is about revealing to us who God is. But here in particular, one aspect of who God is comes through very clearly, and it's this, the patience of God. God is a patient God. God is a God who says over and over and over again the same things. Not only does he, he doesn't just repeat himself though, what you see in this passage is he actually continues to unveil more and more of his promise and what it means. He's told Abraham that you will have an heir. And Abram wonders, well, gosh, as I think about that, and I try to think about how that could possibly ever happen, maybe what God is going to do is he's going to allow me to take advantage of this cultural situation, this cultural tradition and custom and law, where I can take a servant and adopt him and make him my heir. Maybe that's how this promise is going to take place. It seems reasonable to Abram, but God says here, no, that's not going to, how it's going to happen. I'm going to give you a son from your own body. Now we're going to see, Craig's going to talk, I guess, soon about the next chapter, where Abram says, okay, it's going to come out of my body, but he didn't say that it was going to come from Sarah, so maybe there's another way that I can work this out. If you don't know Genesis 16, you might read that and see, you know, but he's always sort of confused. He's always, he hears the promise, and then he tries to think, well, how can this promise happen? Let me see. This makes sense to me, right? Abraham's faith is not perfect, but the direction is right. He believes God, and he believes the promises, and God God takes that and credits credits it to him as righteousness, and we'll talk about that more in a second, but let me just say this. Abram believes God's promise because one of the most important things you need to understand is that faith feeds on the promises of God. Uh, Sometimes I use this illustration with my students. There's a, a big difference between a law agreement and a promise agreement. If I tell Taylor up here, some of you guys know Taylor, you may not know that Taylor's good at working on cars. If I ask Taylor to come over and look at my car and see if he can fix whatever's wrong with it, and I say, Taylor, I'll give you a million dollars if you come over tomorrow and look at my car. 
you can guarantee he's going to be there. <laughs> he's going to be there. But if I tell him, yeah, amen. But if I tell him, Taylor, I'm going to give you a million dollars. That's two different relationships. Now, the first one seems like grace. It seems like this infinite overpayment for really not that much work. But in that case, in that case, two people have to be faithful for him to get the money. He has to do it. And I have to follow through with what I've said. The gospel is not that. The gospel is not a law agreement. Paul goes to great length to make this point in Galatians chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 4 that the gospel is a promise agreement. As a matter of fact, he talks about this passage in Genesis 15 and says this, the gospel, sorry, the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. You might say, well, that's weird. I don't see an altar call. I don't see the name Jesus even mentioned. How does, he, how does it mean that he preached the gospel? This is what he means. When God makes promises, it's the gospel. And all the promises of God flow out of that promise back in Genesis 3.15 that God is going to send one who will be the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And all the other promises of God are about fleshing out that great promise. Not only that, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that all the promises of God, no matter how many promises God has made, they are all fulfilled in Christ. Or as the old King James says, they are all yea and amen in Jesus. I like that. Yea and amen in Jesus. In other words, when God promises something, it's all connected to Jesus. All the promises. Therefore, when God promises here, I am going to give you descendants, he's not just... He's not just making a temporal promise so that Israel can become a nation. He's making a promise that ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus. That's why the Bible later on says that what's really being talked about here are children of faith. Children of faith. People who also believe God. So, the gospel is preached to Abram here because the gospel is a promise. For Taylor to get the money in that promise agreement, the only one who has to be faithful is me. And if I'm faithful, he gets the money. That's what the gospel is. It's a promise agreement. Now, notice that the passage does not say that his faith earned him righteousness as a wage. And that's really important. Rather, it says that he believed God and it was credited him as righteousness. What does that mean? Well, the important thing to understand about that is that our faith is not the work that qualifies us to receive God's grace. As a matter of fact, your faith, if you have it, is a gift. It's not the thing that you bring to the table and offer to God. It's not. Abram believes God. In other words, he trusts God's provision. He trusts that God will do what he says. But he doesn't do that perfectly as his story goes on, and yet he gets credit for righteousness. He believes in God's provision. He doesn't know that that provision is going to take the name Jesus, but he does know that God is the only one who can provide righteousness, provide what he actually needs, and he trusts that provision, and God credits that that to him as righteousness. If Abraham's faith earned him righteousness, it wouldn't say credited to. In other words, what's being said here is Abraham gets credit for righteousness. 
He doesn't get paid for his righteousness. He gets credit for the righteousness that God will provide. Though it's not fully fleshed out here how God is going to provide that righteousness, Abram believes God and believes that God will provide the righteousness that's needed. Right? Now, see, we look back at the cross. We live after the cross, and we look back and we say, ah, this is how it works. This is the righteousness that God promised to provide. And again, as, as Paul says, as many promises as God has made, they all connect to Jesus. All right? So listen, what this means is that faith is not a work that earns salvation. And brothers and sisters, that is good news tonight. Because I, I meet people all the time who are so discouraged because they look at their faith and they see that it's weak and it's full of holes. But what do you expect? You're weak and full of holes, right? <laughs> the reason, though, really that this is so discouraging to people and so devastating is because they think their faith is what saves them. They have, in fact, made a Jesus out of their faith. Do you know that faith can become an idol? That you can actually think that it's the strength and the sincerity of your faith that saves you. Now, I don't know, you know, Rick was talking about people who were trying to do the right things and eventually got set free from that. But I'm telling you, it's one thing to think that you have to do the right things. It's another kind of slavery to think that you have to be perfectly sincere and believe all the right things and never waver. See, and if you think that your faith is what saved you, that's what you have to believe. And it's no wonder you're depressed and discouraged, right? It's like people that have too many DTRs. Do you know, you know what that means? A lot of single people in here, so I think you know what that means. The define the relationship talk. If you enter into a dating relationship with somebody, or if in your marriage, you're constantly looking at the relationship. How are we doing? You know, you're looking at the barometer of your relationship, and you're not looking at the other person. What happens to love? It dies. If you're looking at the relationship, there's all kinds of problems. If you're looking at the other person, it changes everything. Faith is looking not at your faith. If you're looking at your faith, you will always be depressed and discouraged. Faith is looking at Jesus, the provision that God has promised. And again, the Bible teaches that this faith is a gift. If you find it in your heart, rejoice. Even if it's not growing very well, rejoice. And, and ask God, ask other Christians, how can this be nurtured? How can I water this plant? How can, I, how can I help it grow and thrive? But thank God if you have it. And if you don't have it, what do you need to do? Ask God for it. You don't have the power to create it. But God delights to give it. Ask Him. What else do we learn about faith in this passage? We learn that faith is the ability to interpret the present by the promises of God. In other words, it's the future breaking into the now. See, Abram in his life does at times express amazing faith. And, and I think when, when you think about that, think about it this way. For Abraham, the future promise comes into the present and drives the way he lives at times. I, this is why I put in Genesis 13, 8 and 9. Because this is a great example of this. And if you're reading through the Bible, you may not pick up on what's so extraordinary about this. But in Genesis 13, it talks about Abram and his relation with his nephew Lot. And at some point, they get into some squabbles. 
They each have people that work with them, and they begin to, 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 to disagree and to fight. And so it comes clear that they need to separate. They need to split. And here's what's really interesting, is that Abram says to Lot this, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, what's extraordinary about that is that the Canaanites are still in the land. But Abram looks at it and he says, well, Lot, which, where do you want to go? And I'll go the other way. In other words, Abram has this discussion with Lot like the land is already his. But all he has is a promise. That's enough, right? All he has is a promise, but it's enough. And his future, his present reality is determined not by the Canaanites being in the land, but by the fact that God has promised the land to him. Though here in Genesis 15, he's wondering, how can I really believe this promise? So again, faith is not perfect trust all the time. But it is a direction, a relational direction, where I know God and I believe His promises falteringly but truly. See, this is is why I love this quote by Spurgeon. Abram has a promise from God. It's all he has, but it's enough. Spurgeon said this, If we would venture more upon the naked promise of God, we should enter a world of wonders to which we are as yet strangers. The fact is that Christians rarely trust the promises of God unless they have confirming evidence, unless it makes sense to them, unless they can understand how it might work out, unless they can second-guess God and figure out what He's actually doing. Which is to say, we don't really live by faith like we think we do. We don't. Sometimes, Sometimes we live by faith when tragedy comes into our lives. But sometimes we find that our whole lives have been committed to not really needing God. We, we may say we're Christians, but in reality, we protect ourselves all the time. We take care of ourselves as best we can, and we look to God only when we can't do it. And then we wonder why it's so difficult to trust God in tragedy. I, I, I think a good way of understanding this is is this, when I, I grew up in Baltimore, and we grew up on the, we lived on the t- highest hill in Baltimore County, a very windy road to go up Sherwood Road to get there. And yet, if any of you have lived on one of these kind of windy, windy roads, you know that after a while, you get so familiar with the curves of that road that even in the dark, you could close your eyes sometimes, you feel, and, and still follow that, follow that path. I actually did have time. One time my battery, my alternator, something was going wrong, and it was snowing, and I couldn't keep on the windshield wipers, the defogger, and the lights. I had to pick one. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, I can wipe the window with my hand. So I guess I really need the wipers because it was snowing like crazy. But I don't need the lights, and I didn't need the lights. Right? Now, eventually, I I actually ran off the road and hit a tree. (laughs) But for a while, I was doing good. Right, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. If, if, when, if when it's light, if when your life is full of light, you don't really ever go to Jesus, when the lights are gone, you may not know the way. Or you might find it difficult 
It's true. And so, you know, we wonder why our faith is so weak. The fact is, faith is a muscle, and when you don't use it, it atrophies. Do the promises of God define reality for you, for me? It's ridiculous, really, to say you believe God and yet pick and choose what words you actually want to believe. And yet we do that all the time. I'm always challenged by this quote of Augustine. He's a Christian who lived a long, long time ago, back in the fourth century, fifth century. He said this, if we accept what we like in the Gospels and reject what we don't like, it's not the Gospels we believe, it's ourself. A lot of times Christians accept the promises of God as far as they conform to what seems to make sense to you or what seems to be reasonable to you. But the fact is, the promises of God go way beyond what seems reasonable. And do we know anything about that? Do we know anything about what it means for the promises of God to define reality? Do do the promises of God make you generous? I mean, what defines for you how wealthy you are? Your bank account? Or the promises of God? Which is more real? Do the promises of God make you courageous? They should. The promises of God should make you courageous. The promises of God should give you courage to put yourself in situations where you may just fall flat on your face. I remember years ago when I was thinking about dating Wendy Morgan, and I remember what was holding me back very specifically. I was thinking about this, and I was debating, and I remember thinking, what if she says yes? What if she says no? Both of those are frightening prospects. (laughs) Maybe you've been there. And yet, at some point, the Lord helped me to, to say, you know, God is big enough, big enough for what if. I don't know the future, but I know who holds the future. See, faith is not seeing clearly how your life is going to turn out. It's like marriage in that way, right? You make these promises to God based upon His promise, but you don't know what the future will bring. Martin Luther used to say, I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. That's faith. And I know my guide because of what he's revealed and of what he's done. But I don't know where he's leading me. I don't know what he's got planned for me. I've never made a five-year projection of my life that's turned out anything like I thought it would. And after a while, you begin to say, maybe this is the way it's supposed to be. I don't know. Do the promises of God define reality for you? Again, Abram has moments where he seems to get this and other moments where he doesn't seem to get it at all. But he's not perfect. He's not the hero of this passage. God is the hero. He's so patient. He reiterates his promise. And notice this. He adds two beautiful, vivid pictures to help nurture faith and to help us even more be able to believe his promises. And this is where we go into this next little little section. This whole idea of the covenant What does this mean? See, God preaches the gospel to Abram by words and by pictures. 
And this is why it's so important at City Church that we not only hear the gospel preached, but we see the gospel preached in a picture with the sacraments. Because God is saying the same thing with both of them. This picture here is very much like a sacrament. God is giving a picture to assure Abram of his promise and to confirm his faith and say, your faith is not misguided. I really will keep my promises. What do you see? Look here. If I had to describe Abraham's attitude in verse 2, I would say, while I'm not sure he's exactly angry at God, it seems that he's a little despairing. I don't want to press that too far because there's nothing in the passage to say that he gets rebuked for a lack of faith. And, And so, you know, there's a fine line sometimes between questioning God, asking him, and that's completely appropriate and consistent with faith. You need to hear that. Questioning God is consistent with faith. And yet, and yet, God doesn't leave Abraham in his questions. He continues to expand upon his promise and then give him two vivid pictures to help fortify his belief. In other words, God gives pictures of his gospel to people who have weak faith. Isn't that good news? Because we're weak. What does he do? What does he do? See, he responds to Abram's questions by reiterating the promise. And he doesn't stop there. He gives him two vivid pictures. The first is the stars in the sky. The second, though, is this kind of weird story about animals being cut in pieces and then Abram being put into a deep sleep and this vision of a torch going through the pieces. What is that about? Well, it's interesting, if you, if you read this story carefully, you realize God doesn't actually tell Abraham all the details of what to do. The reason is because Abram knows what to do. When God go, tells him to go and get these animals, Abram doesn't need God to spell out what to do with them because this was a common cultural practice in his day. In other words, God takes something that Abraham understands And says, here, we're going to make an agreement, you and I. And this is the way you make agreements, solemn agreements in this day and age. It's called cutting a covenant. And what you do is you take animals, you cut them in half, you spread the pieces apart, and then the two people that are making an agreement walk hand in hand through the pieces of the animal. In doing that, what you're saying with your actions is, if I fail to keep my end of the bargain, may it be done to me what has been done to these animals. And we actually have lots of archaeological evidence, inscriptions and writings describing this sort of thing, where people make agreements and they say, basically, if I don't keep my end of the agreement, then let it be done to me what has been done to these animals. This is how covenants were cut. This is how people made solemn agreements in this day and age. And Abram understands this, and he fully expects to do it that way. But God intervenes and does something really shocking. He does not let Abraham grab his arm and walk through the pieces. Look at what he does. He puts him into a deep sleep and then passes through the pieces by himself. This smoking fire pot is the same idea as what will happen later when God guides his people out of Egypt through the promised land with a pillar of fire. It's the same image. 
God is passing through the pieces by himself. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to take it upon myself to keep this promise. Do you see what a beautiful picture that is? What a humbling picture that is? The covenant of faith is a covenant in which God does all of the pledging and takes it upon himself. And here's what's really crazy. You and I break the covenant, and yet who gets torn apart? Jesus. This is what the cross is all about. Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve for failing to keep this covenant. God says, walk before me as my people. We don't do that. We deserve to be ripped apart. And Jesus comes in our place and is literally torn to pieces at the cross. This is is something you can put your faith in. This is a God who can be trusted. Faith does not feed upon your own willpower saying, God, I'm going to get it right this time. Give me another chance. I'll really get it right. God does not even give Abram that opportunity. This father of faith doesn't get the opportunity to walk hand in hand through the pieces with God. God says, I will do it. It's what the cross is about. And understand, you see, God is nurturing Abraham's faith with this picture, with this promise. God pledges himself. This is what Christianity is all about, that God pledges himself as the guarantor of the promises. And when we fail to keep the call and the commandments of God, he offers up himself as payment. It's remarkable. Faith, you see, is not a leap in the dark. What God did, what God promised with these words and with these pictures is real. What Jesus did is not just fantasy. It's not just some nice little religious ideas that we tell ourselves to feel better. This is reality. And and I guess, you know, what living the Christian life is about is about trying to get our lives and our thoughts and our feelings and our hopes and our dreams and our regrets in conformity with reality. See, this is what's really amazing. The Bible says that faith is not a leap in the dark. It's unbelief that's the leap in the dark. It's unbelief that shuts its eyes to reality and tries to live like this isn't true. But it is true. It is true. Jesus really did die. He really did live in the place of sinners. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? It's difficult. Listen, Christians struggle to believe this. Why? Because we look so often at our surroundings. We look so often at our present experience. We look so often at how how much we believe this stuff, and we try to take that as as the sort of the standard for what's real and what's true. John Calvin put it this way. I think this is fascinating. He says, the life of faith is a paradox. It's paradoxical. He says, eternal life is promised to us, but it's promised to dead people. (laughs) We're told of the resurrection of the blessed, but meantime, we're involved in corruption. We're declared to be just, and yet sin dwells within us. We hear that we're blessed, but meantime we're overwhelmed by untold miseries. 
We are promised an abundance of all good things, but we are often hungry and thirsty. God proclaims that He will come to us immediately, but He seems deaf to our cries. What would happen to us if we did not rely on our hope and if our minds did not emerge above the world out of the mists of darkness through the shining Word of God and His Spirit? In other words, Christians have got to believe in the Word of God against sense and experience. Again, faith is not shutting your eyes to reality. It actually is opening your eyes to more reality. You see partially. We see suffering now. We don't see what is true, that Jesus reigns even now. And we fail to believe that he has promised to put all things right. But faith is the ability to have the future break into the now, and that changes everything. You see, if I don't have to get all of my fulfillment in this life, it means that I can live my life for other people, because I've got all eternity to rejoice and enjoy the presence of God. I, I, I can take some of my time now and use it to serve other people. I can take some of my money now and use it for other people, because I have, I have the promise of God that is something I can bank on. It's true. It's real. It's not just pie in the sky, and it changes the here and now. What determines your reality? <laughs> Do you know what it means for the promise of God to break into your reality and drive the way you live? This is what it means to live and to walk by faith. Believing that God's objective, true reality, His love for you, transforms reality. But that requires a miracle, doesn't it? <laughs> but I have good news. Faith is a miracle. And God gives it to people. It's not something that you should just admire from afar. God invites you to come to Him, to ask Him for faith. He promises that if you ask for the Spirit, He will give it to you. See, God preaches the gospel as a promise to strengthen our faith. God preaches the gospel as a promise to help us understand what faith is. And as we come to this table... As we come to this table, we come to this picture that is saying the same thing. God has promised to make provision for our righteousness. Think of righteousness as this. It's the, it's the, it's the well done from God. It's basically God saying, declaring us beautiful because we've done everything He wants from the heart. Righteousness is God declaring that you're beautiful because you've done everything that he wants. That's what this table promises us. God looks at Christians and says, you're beautiful. You've done everything I want. Is that true? Yes and no. It's not true about you, but it's true about Jesus. And you get credit for it. So it is true about you. And what we come to this table, we don't come to this table hoping that this will be true. We come to this table so that God would remind us and beat it into our hearts that this is true. This is reality. This table, this body, this blood defines who you are and defines what God thinks about you. And what he says about you is you're beautiful. You've done everything I could ever want. Man, don't you, don't you know how your life would change if you believe that? 
It's hard to believe. That's why we have communion every week. That's why we preach the gospel every week. That's why we have an assurance of pardon every week. It's why we confess our sins and confess that we're not living like this is true. Help us. Help us. See, the reality is God has given us the word, worship, prayer, the table to do battle with our unbelief. He is patient, but he is persistent. And we can, we can bank on that. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your patience. We thank you for your provision. We pray, Lord, that we would gladly accept it, that we would not resist it anymore, that we would collapse upon your provision and find it more than all that we need. We thank you for this opportunity now to feed by faith on your promise as we come to the table. And we ask that you would help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.